0: Well, again, good morning, everyone. My name is Amy, and I'm one of the pastors here. And today is Epiphany Sunday. And epiphany is just a word that means showing or showing forth or revealing. Or to use the language from that Ephesians passage that Tom read just a minute ago, mystery made known by revelation. Epiphany is this season of mysteries made known. The mystery that God has finally come into the world, to set things right and to establish his kingdom. And then the mystery that that setting right and that kingdom doesn't look the way people thought it would. It doesn't come where it was expected. It's not for the people that it was expected for. It's not playing out in the way anyone could have foreseen. And so in this season of Epiphany, we discover what it means that Jesus has been born as the rescuer and the king for all people not only for the Jewish people, as they expected. This is the mystery made known that Ephesians describes, and I'm going to read a different translation of that passage. This is the mystery. None of our ancestors understood this. Only in our time has it been made clear by God's Spirit. The mystery is that people who have never heard of God and those who have heard of him all their lives, outsiders and insiders, Now stand on the same ground before God. And epiphany is also the name not just of this season that we're entering into, this season where this mystery gets more and more unveiled. It's also the name of a particular day, the first day of the season. And epiphany always falls on January 6th. That was on Friday, in case you didn't observe it in your homes as we did. Uh, But it's our practice to celebrate Epiphany on the Sunday afterward. And so this is the day that we are celebrating Epiphany. We are remembering the journey of the Magi, these Eastern, probably Persian, astrologers, these outsiders, these non-Jewish people, coming to the home of the child Jesus, kneeling in the dirt, and paying him homage. But we can hardly hear that date, January 6th without thinking of another day, a day that brought its own kind of revealing in this country. January 6th is also this day in our national memory, this day in our national calendar that revealed just how deep and hostile our political divisions are. And so that date of January 6th, it brings this tension between our national identity and our kingdom identity and our national calendar and our church calendar. It just lives in January 6th. But actually, that's really appropriate because this tension is kind of at the heart of the story of Epiphany. It's the same tension between King Jesus and King Herod, between the way of Jesus and the way of Herod and of all the world's Herods. And it asks the question of us, which way will we choose? Which kingdom holds our identity and our allegiance? Which king will we bow down to and give our treasures to? And that's really the question and the revelation that's at the heart of Epiphany. That's what it reveals in us. So let's look again at this story and see what God has to show us. So it's interesting, if you worshipped with us on Christmas Eve, then maybe you notice that the way Matthew tells the Christmas story is quite different from the way Luke does, which is what most of our Christmas Eve story came from. Matthew never gives us a manger or shepherds or angels, no glory shining in the field. Matthew starts off with this geopolitical intrigue, even this hint of danger. Matthew starts, in the time of King Herod, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? Right away we hear in this passage there is one too many kings. There's King Herod, and there's some newborn king of the Jews. And right away Matthew anchors us in this very specific time and place and political reality, the time of King Herod. Now, Herod had been appointed king of Judea by the Roman Empire. He was like a steward king or a client king, and he ruled over this region. And by all accounts, this Herod was a really shrewd politician, very agile. He was also one of the wealthiest men in the world. And Herod was so good at what all good politicians are good at, capturing the imaginations of people through these spectacular displays of his power, of their identity, these spectacular displays of wealth. He rebuilt the Jewish temple. He built all these roads and amphitheaters and aqueducts, swimming pools that were like five times what we would call an Olympic-sized pool. And he built seven palaces for himself, all of them bigger than any Caesar's palace ever built in Rome, the capital. In fact, for one of these palaces, he actually built a man-made mountain so that he could put the palace on top. And it's still one of the biggest things in that landscape. But by the time Jesus was born, Herod's building projects had kind of slowed down because he was nearing the end of his life. He probably died in 4 AD, so not long after Jesus' birth. And he had become incredibly paranoid and violent at the end of his life. He had this massive secret police force, and people lived in terror. Executions under Herod became widespread, Not just his political enemies, but also his wife, several of his children, all sorts of members of his family and his trusted circles. It didn't take much to make Herod feel suspicious and threatened and for him to retaliate. And so all of that is what it means when Matthew tells us that Jesus was born at the time of King Herod. He was born into this world ruled by insecure and power-hungry people. He was born into this world where rulers spared no expense to promote themselves and to capture hearts and minds. And this is the world that the Magi arrive in when they show up kind of naively in the capital city and set off Herod's paranoia. They've seen this sign in the night sky that has suggested to them that a new king of the Jews has been born. We don't know what they saw, but we know that it suggested those ideas of birth and kingship and Judaism. And there was this common idea back then that when a famous person was born, there would be a sign in the heaven. And so the Magi were people who studied those kinds of signs, and they saw something and interpreted it and set off on their camels for this journey. So when they see this, they go to the natural place to look for a king of the Jews. They go to the capital city, to Jerusalem. And that's where they find Herod and ask, where is he? Where is this king who has been born king of the Jews? And that phrase that they use, king of the Jews, is a really interesting one. It's another clue that the Magi were not Jewish because it's not a phrase Jewish people would ever use about their ruler. They might call their king a Messiah or the son of David or the king of Israel. But king of the Jews is just a non-Jewish, a Gentile way of talking about the ruler of the Jewish people. It's what the Roman Empire called King Herod. And we only hear this phrase, king of the Jews, twice in Matthew's Gospel, both times on the lips of Gentiles, of non-Jewish people, once right here, and then another time in chapter 27, when Roman soldiers use it to describe Jesus. I'm going to read that time. They, the soldiers, put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. After mocking him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. So in both uses of this little phrase, King of the Jews, we see that Jesus' kingdom is not neutral to the rulers and the kingdoms of this world. At his birth, Jesus' kingship so scares the richest man in the world and threatens to topple his kingdom that he goes on this murderous spree. And then at his death, Jesus' kingdom provokes jeering, and insults and scorn from these agents of the Roman Empire. But this Jesus, this humble child in Bethlehem, this scorned and stripped and beaten man on the cross, this is the true king of humanity, of all the cosmos, of each of us, of everything, now and forever and forever but it doesn't look like we thought it would look, and it takes an epiphany of revealing to show it, to see it. And not everyone does see it. Herod, obviously, for starters, he's scared, and he doesn't know where to find this king that's threatening his power, so he calls these Jewish advisors to come and tell him, where was the Messiah supposed to be born? And this is what they say. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Now, Matthew does something really interesting here, because he says this has been written by the prophet, but it's actually this creative mashup and sort of rephrasing of quotes from two different prophets, from two really different times in Israel's history, from Samuel and from Micah. So, that part at the end about a ruler who's to shepherd my people Israel, that's from 2 Samuel chapter 5, almost a direct quote, when the prophet Samuel anoints David to be Israel's king. And David was the least likely choice for a king. He was the youngest of his brothers, he was a lowly shepherd, had no kingly skills or preparation. And we see at his anointing this theme that is going to run all through the scriptures that God is building his kingdom from what seems least and lowliest. And then that part about Bethlehem is from the prophet Micah, chapter 5. This takes place long after the glories of King David, after the Jewish people have known exile and humiliation and failure and so much grief. And there, Micah prophesies, the one day God will send a new David, a new king, a fulfillment of everything David was always supposed to be, someone who would rescue his people, someone who would establish peace on the whole earth, who would bring justice and righteousness and defend the cause of the poor and needy, and whose throne would be forever. And like that first David, this new David would be a shepherd of his people, Like the first David, this new David would be born in the sleepy little village of Bethlehem, not in the magnificent capital city, not in the urban centers. And so when Matthew quotes Samuel and Micah and mashes them together and kind of mixes them up, he's not just pulling a couple of quotes to prove why Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. He's actually doing something much bigger something that Matthew loves to do all through his gospel. And because we're reading it during this season, we'll get to hear a lot of this. He's providing an epiphany for us. He's revealing how Jesus is the fulfillment, not just of these piecemeal quotes, but of all the prophets, of the whole sense and story of scripture. From David to Micah to King Herod to now, Jesus is the culmination of this great story that God has always been writing. The story of this God who is establishing his kingdom in what is little and lowly and least expected. A humble king in a manger, a dying king on a cross. This is the mystery made known. And as we come to this mystery today, Jesus invites us alongside the Magi, to find our exceedingly great joy in his kingdom, to find our riches there. Not in the kingdom of the world's Herods, not in the ways of the world's Herods, not in self-promotion and wealth and power and image. The birth of King Jesus will one day be the undoing of all the world's Herods. But we can come with the Magi and kneel in the dirt. We can open the treasures of our lives, of our gifts. We can invite outsiders, people who are far from God, people who think they don't belong in this story. We can invite them to come with us and worship this humble king. And in a few minutes, we will baptize Micah, a little boy who is named for the prophet, whose words so unsettled. King Herod. And baptism is this beautiful picture of God's elevation of what is least and littlest, of God's upside-down kingdom, God's elevation of what is quiet and humble. This God who topples unjust rulers, this God who will one day reign forever, has entrusted his kingdom to little children, And so we'll take just a moment of silence before the baptism. I invite you to pray with me for Micah and for all of us.